This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics some people might find disturbing. And this episode in particular frequently discusses sexual assault. At a press conference in March 2015, Margie Shapiro tells reporters how she met Bill Cosby in 1975. I was 19 years old and working at Castle Donuts in Santa Monica. Margie is working the early shift at the donut shop. It wasn't quite light out yet, maybe around 5 a.m., when a large gold-colored Cayenne car pulled up to the curb. It had little tennis rackets that were cross-painted near the doors. A man steps out of the car and approaches. Margie recognizes him immediately. Who wouldn't? His face is known across America. Bill Cosby came up to the window and ordered dozens of donuts. Cosby, who is then 38 years old, invites Margie and her manager to visit a film set he's working on. We went and were duly impressed and starstruck. My boss left after a while, but I stayed longer. Margie says Cosby then invites her to go with him to the Playboy Mansion. Would I like to go check out Hugh Hefter's mansion and possibly meet him since they were good friends? I said, sure. There were no red flags. It was just like, hey, this is cool hanging out with Bill Cosby. When they drive through the big iron gates of the Playboy Mansion, Cosby doesn't take Margie into the famous house itself. Instead, he drives to a smaller building. That I guess would be called a rec place or a game house. It had pinball machines, a pool table, and maybe foosball too. There was a bathroom and a bar area, and I noticed an open door to a bedroom with a round or heart-shaped bed in it. Cosby suggests that they play a game of pinball. And then he challenged me to a wager that whoever lost the next game would swallow a pill. So I said, sure, why not? Since he was still not being malicious or anything. To her, it's just a game. After I lost the first one, I took the pill. The last thing I remember was that we started to play again. So I don't know if I kept playing and lost again, or if I passed out and fell down. At some point, I didn't really wake up, but I came to a little. And the first thing I saw was Bill Cosby's face not far above me, and we were both naked. He was inside me and touching me, and I was so grossed out, I can't find the words to express my disgust and mercifully, I passed back out again. When Margie finally wakes up for good, she's alone. I remember sitting up, locating my pants and bra, putting them on as fast as I could, thinking he'd be back any second. Cosby walks back into the room. He acted like nothing happened. Mr. Cosby then informed me that we were not going to see Hugh after all. Then he said I wasn't dressed nice enough anyway, and that we were leaving. I kept seeing the picture in my mind of waking to him the first time and kept feeling sick inside. I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, and this is Power, Hugh Hefner, and the Rise and Fall of Playboy.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the last episode, we heard from Holly Madison about life in the Playboy Mansion during the 2000s and the emotional abuse she suffered there. Just around the time that Madison's memoir was published in 2015, a string of allegations began to connect Hefner and Playboy with one of the country's most widely publicized sexual assault cases. Something doesn't smell right, and it's coming out of the Playboy mansion. More than 25 women have publicly accused Bill Cosby of raping or assaulting them over the past 40 years. This was earth-shattering. The complete unmasking of the man who'd become affectionately known as America's dad through his role on The Cosby Show. We love you. We let you borrow money even though you're not qualified to pay it back. (laughs) You get out in the real world, it's going to be different. But when I get in the real world, I'll do just fine because I'm going to have a lot of money. I hope you're not waiting for me to die. It was just so warm and friendly and just a great place to go to. This is Nikki Weinsey Egan, an investigative journalist and the author of the book Chasing Cosby. Family-friendly comedy, lots of good deeds, lots of donations to colleges, lots of work on civil rights issues. I mean, he was an icon here in the United States. Along the way, Cosby had also gained a lot of famous friends. One of them we know very well by now. I mean, they were very, very close friends, if not best friends. Hugh Hefner. I imagine it was over a shared love of women. The two men started spending time together in the later 1960s. Hefner even gave Cosby an apartment in the Chicago mansion. When he was in LA, Cosby regularly stayed at Playboy Mansion West and played tennis with the other celebrity guests. Here are lots of friends, uh, Cosby and Jimmy Kahn, Jim Brown, and other friends are out here playing almost every day. From the outside at the time, this might not have seemed like the most natural pairing of personalities. Given that Bill Cosby's whole public image was this family man, he had five children, happily married for all these years. I mean, yeah, it's juxtaposing it with being a fixture at the Playboy mansions and being best friends with Hugh Hefner. But as it becomes clear, Bill Cosby had led a double life. He was one person to the public and he was another in private. I was a reporter at the Philadelphia Daily News in January 2005 when it broke on our local news that Bill Cosby had been accused of drugging, and at the time they were calling it groping, um, a woman who used to work at Temple University in Philadelphia. The woman accusing him is Andrea Constand. She meets Cosby 14 months earlier through her job working with a women's basketball team at the university. He's a friend of her boss's, and he offers to become her mentor. One day, she asks for his advice about a career change. And he invited her over to his house that night to talk about it. Andrea alleges that while she's there, Cosby offers her two blue pills, claiming that they're herbal medication. She took it 
because she trusted him. And within 20 minutes, she was dizzy. She was having trouble focusing her eyes. She stood up and she was wobbly. She couldn't walk. He took her over to the couch that was off the kitchen, laid her down on the couch, and she lay there frozen, helpless, and silent while he sexually assaulted her. She couldn't do anything. Immediately after, Andrea doesn't tell anyone about what she says happened that night. But after months of nightmares, she finally talks to her mom. And she just blurted it out. She said, Mom, Bill Cosby drugged and sexually assaulted me. Andrea goes to the police, and an investigation begins. But the district attorney decides not to take the case forward. In fact, he abruptly called a halt to the investigation. Cosby had given an interview to police, and he claimed what happened between them was consensual. During the investigation, though, 13 other women had come forward saying Cosby had drugged or intoxicated and then assaulted them. It's the perfect crime. It wipes out a victim's ability to speak, to move, to resist in any way. It wipes out most of their memory, most of it. And there's no evidence then that this was anything but consensual. These drugs go out of the system very quickly. And anyway, I mean, the person could argue that, hey, she took it voluntarily. And, and who are they going to believe? Are they going to believe a regular person or someone like Bill Cosby? It didn't seem to affect his reputation one bit. He went on to get more awards. He's got one of the great comedy minds that was ever invented. He is the greatest American comedian of all time. I mean, it didn't seem to have an impact, any impact whatsoever on his public image. Cosby seems invincible. He even uses his platform to preach about respectability politics to other Black people. It is almost analgesic to talk about what the white man is doing against us. You can't find a job because you didn't want to get an education. The comedian Hannibal Burris isn't having it. In 2014, he does a bit about Cosby's hypocrisy. Pull your pants up, black people. I was on TV in the 80s. <laughs> I can talk down to you because I had a successful sitcom. Yeah, it was great women, Bill Cosby, so kind of crazy down a couple notches. I don't curse on stage. Well, yeah, you're a rapist, so... The video of Burris calling Cosby a rapist goes viral. If you didn't know about it, trust me. When you leave here, Google Bill Cosby rapist. It's not funny. This shit has more results than Hannibal Burris. Then all of a sudden, people are paying attention. And then new accusers started coming out, and it just began snowballing. My basic reaction was, this is deja vu all over again. Like, I covered all of this in 2005, and nobody cared. Um, it was surreal. I just, it just made no sense to me. I mean, I was glad to see it in a way, because I really felt like, you know, Cosby knew how to control the media, but he could not control social media. Cosby issues a denial. Under mounting pressure... Cosby's camp responds to the renewed allegations. The fact that they are being repeated does not make them true. Mr. Cosby does not intend to dignify these allegations with any comment. I have to ask about your name coming up in the news recently regarding this comedian. No, no, we don't answer that. Okay. I, I just wanted to ask if you wanted to respond at all about whether any of that was true. There's no response. Thank you. 
All this newfound attention spurs even more women to come forward with allegations of sexual assault against Cosby. They were just lending their voices because they just wanted to be heard and they wanted people to believe them. Some of these women linked their stories to the Playboy Mansion and clubs where Cosby was a regular. She claims Cosby sexually assaulted her at the Playboy Mansion in the 70s when she was 15 years old. So what did Hugh Hefner know? We'll be back after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for coming today. Today I'm here with three women who have decided that it's important for them to speak out and share with the public for the first time what they say happened to them when they had the misfortune to meet Bill Cosby. The experiences of the women coming forward have a lot in common. They involve drugging and sexual assault dating back to the 70s and 80s. This meant that despite Nikki Egan's tireless reporting, Cosby couldn't face criminal charges because of the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations is just the length of time a prosecutor has to file a particular type of criminal charge against someone. In Pennsylvania, where Cosby was being investigated, the statute of limitations is 12 years for rape. All of the allegations fell outside of this period, except Andrea Constans, by just one month. Her case is the only one that could go to court. And the lawyer Gloria Allred steps in to help. She represents the women whose cases can't be heard because of the time that's elapsed. They might not be able to go to trial, but what they can do is draw attention to their stories. Allred and her clients begin holding a series of high-profile press conferences. I'm attorney Gloria Allred. I'll have a brief statement. And then I'm happy to answer any questions, and we'll provide you copies of my statement. As more women speak out, there's an undeniable pattern in many of their accounts. The first person linked to Playboy to speak out against Bill Cosby was Victoria Valentino. She alleges that she was sexually assaulted by Cosby in the late 60s when she was working as a model, most notably as a Playboy centerfold. 2015 is the first time she speaks publicly about it. I was introduced to him uh, December 69 um, by a friend of mine who was my bunny instructor at the Playboy Club. I think that she felt that maybe it would be a good professional connection. PJ Maston, a bunny and then club manager in the 70s, says that Cosby raped her in a Chicago hotel. 
The next day, distraught, she told her supervisor at work. And her boss said, you know he's Hef's best friend, don't you? And that was it. So it took all these women speaking years later for her to be able to tell her story to the public. In total, eight bunnies, aspiring playmates, actual playmates, and guests at Playboy Mansion parties come forward with allegations. And these are just the ones willing to make them publicly. Margie Shapiro, who we heard from at the top of the episode, is among them. I kept seeing the picture in my mind of waking to him the first time and kept feeling sick inside. Nikki sees Hefner as a key figure in these allegations against Cosby. Common theme is he felt like he could do whatever he wanted with those women because Hugh Hefner was his best friend. He had his protection. Hefner, feeling the heat from all this, issues a statement. On Friday, Hugh Hefner issued a statement reading, quote, Bill Cosby has been a good friend for many years, and the mere thought of these allegations is truly saddening. I would never tolerate this kind of behavior, regardless of who was involved. But one of Cosby's alleged victims directly accuses Hefner of responsibility. In 2015, former model Chloe Gaines files a lawsuit against Hefner. I decided to come public and come forward and relive everything that happened to me um, because of the other women. And I would like to see justice for all of us. Chloe claims Cosby sexually assaulted her at a party at the L.A. mansion in 2008. And she makes the case that Hefner is liable because he knew about the allegations against Cosby and still invited him and still suggested Chloe have a drink with him. I buried it for a long time, and uh, I'm not sure how I would have been able to come out if these brave women didn't come forward and find the strength to tell their story. Hefner denies having done anything wrong, and Chloe doesn't win the case. It seems that Hefner, the all-seeing king of the mansion, is able to minimize his influence there when he needs to. But finally, in December 2015, it seems that Cosby, at least, will face the music. On the evening of December 30th, I got a tip in the form of a text that something was about to happen. Nikki breaks the news that Cosby's accusers had been waiting for. An arrest warrant had been issued for him. He was arrested and charged with three counts of aggravated indecent assault for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constand at his home in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania in January 2004. In June 2017, America's dad appears in court. The media attention was unbelievable. Um, there were, you know, TV helicopters zooming over. But he still has a few tricks up his sleeve. Cosby did a brilliant pre-R move, and he walked into the courthouse that day with Keisha Knight Pulliam on his arm, who, of course, played his daughter Rudy in The Cosby Show. You know, he just didn't really seem like he was at all bothered by what was going on. Cosby pleads not guilty. The trial lasts for five and a half days. So it went to the jury Monday afternoon. And finally, Saturday morning, after it was 50-some hours of deliberations and they couldn't come to an agreement, the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. Hefner doesn't react publicly to his friend's mistrial. Perhaps he's finally decided that Cosby is now too toxic to associate himself with. Or... Maybe he senses that the old rules around sex and power 
are about to change. After the break, America reckons with a colossal uprising against other powerful men accused of sexual misconduct, and the curtains fall on the Playboy empire. For now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. By 2017, Hugh Hefner has been part of American culture for almost seven decades. The 91-year-old playboy is still desperately clinging to his legend and image with a very public string of young girlfriends and carefully staged press events. But finally, on September 27, 2017, Hefner exits the spotlight for good. Playboy founder Hugh Hefner died last night at his Los Angeles home. Hefner died of natural causes, and he was 91 years old. The Cosby allegations including many related to the mansion and clubs, have been front-page news for two years when Hefner passes away. Tell-all memoirs, like Holly Madison's and Jennifer Saganer's, have also tarnished his reputation. And many others have accused him of cultivating an abusive environment. And yet, when Hefner dies, media portrayals of him are overwhelmingly positive. Hefner will be remembered as more than an elderly gent in a silk robe, he changed the face of America. Hugh Hefner was a giant in publishing, journalism, free speech, and civil rights. In my wildest dreams, Hef once said, I could not have imagined a sweeter life. Well, we hope he's in a better place, but I'm not sure that's possible. There were a few criticisms of Hefner immediately following his death. But even these were mostly ruminations on Playboy's overall legacy, more so than his personal conduct. The naked truth is that the photo spread helped introduce an enduring cultural debate about whether sex should be sexy. The whole thing was weird. That's Holly Madison. It wasn't shocking to me when he passed away, and I didn't have any emotion attached to it at all because I had cut any emotion I'd had attached to him so long ago. And I think the person that I had liked when I was in the depths of that relationship never really existed. Holly feels she's moved on from that stage in her life, so she doesn't react publicly to Hefner's death. But she says that some people were upset with her for not mourning him publicly. 
on social media. I got a lot of backlash for not making a statement about his death. I think society in the social media age has such a weird expectation of people to mourn in public and for people to post about people die. And I don't think that should be a requirement of anybody, no matter the relationship. In the 64 years of Hefner's Playboy, he'd been cast in many different roles. Misogynist, pervert, activist, libertine, manipulator, visionary. He was a shapeshifter, but the truth of it is that he was never as interesting as the women he relied on to build his influence. That's why I wanted to make this show about them. What Hefner never lacked, though, was the allure of a good story. And there's one last twist to his. On October 5th, 2017, just eight days after Hefner dies, the New York Times publishes a report about Harvey Weinstein's gross abuses of his star-making status and power. The reaction is off the charts. The Harvey Weinstein scandal is deepening. It's, of course, about one man, but it's increasingly about Hollywood, too. And all the time, more and more allegations are being made. Hundreds of women come forward with abuse allegations implicating powerful men across the entertainment industry and beyond. The movement begins to change the way millions of people think about sex and power. With our whole bodies and with our whole hearts, we come today out of the shadows and away from the dark, hollow narrative that we are somehow complicit in our own abuse. We come to stand in the face of fear and ridicule and rejection and shame and say, you tried to take me out because you thought I was alone, but not today. It's kind of incredible how Hefner slips off stage just days before Me Too sweeps the world. Would the movement have hurt him if he'd been alive? Or would he have somehow managed to emerge more or less unscathed, just as he'd done so many times throughout his life? While all this is going on, Nikki Egan is still covering the Cosby case. And in April 2018, against this new social backdrop, Prosecutors retry Andrea Constan's case. As the jury deliberates, Nikki is wondering whether history will repeat itself. This was a tough case and for a jury. So I, I really didn't expect a conviction. And then I thought, as we're sitting there waiting, I thought, well, maybe on one of the counts, maybe, I don't know. I just, you know, you, it's hard to get a read on it and just after watching what happened in the first trial, you know, it was truly hard to figure out what a jury was going to do. The verdict comes in. So I was shocked. I was shocked when he was convicted on not one, but all three counts. For Cosby's accusers, it's a moment of release. Three of Cosby's survivors that were in the audience, they'd been there for the trial, just started burst out crying. I mean, just tears of utter and complete joy that... Finally, you know, finally, he was going to have to pay for what he'd done to so many of them. And for the media outside, it's a huge story. The first major conviction since the Weinstein story broke. A stunning fall from grace tonight for Bill Cosby, the man once dubbed America's dead, found guilty on all three counts of aggravated indecent assault. Cosby's conviction is later overturned. His defense lawyers successfully argue that he should have been immune from criminal prosecution after giving testimony in an earlier civil lawsuit. 
Cosby himself has always denied that he had non-consensual sex with anyone. But the fight goes on. In fact, even while we've been making this show, his prosecutors have asked the Supreme Court to review that ruling that overturned his conviction. However this legal saga ultimately ends, for Hefner's legacy and Playboy's reputation, Cosby's 2018 conviction remains an important moment. Mr. Hefner was complicit in a history of violence against women, allowing Mr. Cosby to take these actions against young women that were invited to that home over the years. Playboy, now under CEO Ben Kahn, attempts a radical rebrand with women out in front and in charge. In 2019, it publishes its equality issue. The 77-year-old Victoria Valentino, one of Cosby's accusers, is on the cover. And the star interviewee is the journalist Christiane Amanpour. Even Me Too founder Tarana Burke gives Playboy an interview. But a slick rebrand can't undo decades of toxicity. In spring 2020, Playboy announces the end of its print magazine after 67 years. Playboy magazine is set to become a collector's item. Ben Cohn, Playboy Enterprise's chief executive, wants to focus on what he calls the world of Playboy, which is so much larger than a small legacy print publication. The move comes after circulation has dropped almost 5 million readers in just 40 years. In 2021, another of Hefner's friends, the porn actor Ron Jeremy, faces numerous accusations, many involving the Playboy Mansion. It's a sad state of affairs for a brand that, once upon a time, was on the vanguard of glamour, influence, and cultural change. I think that what has made Playboy successful is the fact that it came along at a time in which uh, much of magazine publishing was in older hands, and I think that Playboy was the first one to speak with a voice that a great many people were looking for. Playboy transformed the people whose lives it touched. I never felt anything about color there. Hefner did not like segregation. We've heard from so many women who credit Hefner for giving them a path to success and happiness. I could have bought three houses like my parents, so I knew at age 21 I would be pretty rich and independent. They carved out agency. I'm a photographer and a playmate. We're not getting along. So I went and I said to the photographer, just get behind the camera. And we've heard from so many people who were scarred by their experiences in Hefner's orbit. It's just taken me so many decades to sort of clear my mind and understand um, the gravity of how inappropriate that environment was for a kid. And colliding with Hefner, all of them had to try to make the most of a power differential that sometimes badly hurt them. Despite everything we know about how it hurt real women, we haven't seen the last of Playboy. Yet another rebrand is underway. In December, Cardi B signed up as a creative director in residence. As I'm recording this, Playboy is launching a creator-led platform, Centerfold, that aims to compete with OnlyFans. Whatever happens next, it won't resolve the tensions that swirl around Playboy. Between exploitation and freedom, strength and submission, agency and victimhood, liberation and control. 
As I finish making this series, I'm reminded of who we began it with, Marilyn Monroe. Don't you know that a man being rich is like a girl being pretty? You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty, but my goodness, doesn't it help? She embodied all these contradictions, the power, the glamour, the confusion, the pain. It was her body that first made Hugh Hefner into an icon when he used her nude photos in the first issue of Playboy without her permission. She was the, the launching key to the beginning of Playboy. Right now, Hefner is buried beside her in Los Angeles. Again, she never asked for or agreed to this. Certainly has a, has a very kind of uh, completion notion to it. Uh, I will be spending the rest of eternity with, with Marilyn. It's a strange, creepy image, but also a testament to Marilyn's power. And by extension, the power of all the women who made Playboy the force that it was. In life and death, Hefner knew he'd be nothing without the women around him, even if he couldn't fully credit them or thank them for their work, for all their sacrifices and their victories. We can. I do. Our next bonus episode will be dropping on January 3rd, but be sure you stick around to the end of the credits because I want to tell you about the next season of Power, which is going to be huge. But now, for the last time, the amazing people who made our show. Power, Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design come from Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Mia Warren, Grant Irving, Lily Hambly, Gulliver Lawrence Tickle, Siobhan Donnelly, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. Special thanks also to historian Stephen Watts, whose book Mr. Playboy, Hugh Hefner and the American Dream was a great help in the making of this show. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. Okay, quickly before you go, I want to share the news about the next season of Power. It's about the controversial superstar boxing promoter Don King. And let me tell you, it is fascinating. On May 11th, 2020, a 25-second video on Instagram started to go viral. Mike Tyson, one of the greatest, scariest heavyweight boxers of all time, was putting in work at a California training session. At 54, Mike looked like he still had it. Tyson training isn't a big secret. A couple weeks earlier, he dropped another explosive sparring video, and it gets almost 14 million views. But this latest video is different, all because of the final two words he says that almost get drowned out by the noise in the gym. I'm back. Folks are shook 
Mike Tyson is making a return to the ring. The former undisputed heavyweight champ announced his comeback this morning on social media. Mike Tyson retired at 38 and trying to come back at 53. But I want to know who the fool going to get in the ring with it. That man is solid. I got chills because I saw flashes of a 21 or 22-year-old Mike Tyson. But I couldn't help but feel that we all know something's off with his comeback. It's the green-colored elephant in the room. At 54, Mike Tyson should be a new rich retired boxer enjoying a quiet, glorious second act, not climbing back in the ring, putting himself at risk. By all accounts, he earned enough cash in the 80s and 90s to support himself and future generations of Tysons for a lifetime or two. But that's not his reality. The last time we saw him in the ring in 2005, the only thing you could describe it as was lackluster. Kevin McBride, a journeyman, is making Mike Tyson look like a third-tier heavyweight. A stunned crowd here at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C. As journeyman Kevin McBride defeats Mike Tyson, who quits on his stool. Exhausted after going six rounds that should have been a cakewalk for him, he rises to his feet for his post-match interview. I'm just sorry I let everybody down. I mean... I just don't have this in my heart anymore. Did you feel as though you had it coming into the fight? Um, no, I'm, I'm just fighting to take care of my, um, my bills, basically. I know I, I didn't have it in my stomach no more, but I was in dire needs to take care of my life. Tyson was broke and was saying goodbye to the sport that saved his life and made him a multi. And I'm talking at one point worth $685 million. Multi-millionaire. Now, he takes responsibility for blowing through a lot of those millions. But the blame for the other half of Tyson's massive financial plummet is squarely placed on one man in particular, Tyson's former promoter, Don King. Our first guest is a man I think of as a, in a very special way. He's done a tremendous amount for boxing, and boxing has done a lot for him. He's probably the world's greatest promoter. Let's have a nice welcome for Don King. Here he is. Larger than life, a bombastic cultural icon, you don't even have to be a boxing fan to know who Don King is. I bet you have a picture of him in your mind right now. A fat cigar, balancing between his fingers covered in blinged out rings. Maybe you hear the echo of his quirky laugh. But what you surely see is his trademark hair. Don King's signature hair looked as if he's been electrocuted, each strand protruding from his head in anti-gravity fashion, frost-tipped with gray. Even some 20-plus years past his last real dalliance with the public, his hair remains as iconic as Michael Jordan's bald head, Michael Jackson's jerry curl, Farrah Fawcett's feather do, or Trump's comb over. Don's biggest footprint was in boxing, a sport known for its anything-goes approach. A man fiercely determined to be great and willing to go to any distance to get what he wanted, it never stood a chance of containing him. At his peak, you couldn't really get anything done at the highest levels of the sport without encountering Don King one way or another. So that kind of power, well, that power corrupts. He set his sights on the greater entertainment world and found his way into our homes and cultural consciousness. Just ask the guy who got him into the business. Don sold himself like no one's ever sold himself. He's one in, forget a million, he's one in earth, hell, <laughs> anything, moon, stars, Venus. And in his 30-plus years of dominating sports and entertainment, he dazzled legends like Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson, culture makers like the Jacksons, and hell, 
anyone else around him with his charm and self-described wit and bullshit. He's a smooth talker. He's a hustler. So if he gets you in his grips, you're done. There's nothing can be found wrong with me. I have not done anything other than revolutionize the sport of boxing, pay more money to fighters than ever been paid in the history of the world, put a new glamour, a new type of flamboyance to the sport to give it a little grandeur and a little dignity and pride to the youngsters that are fighting, made more millionaires out of prize fighters than anyone in the history of the world has ever done. No doubt, if there was something to be done in boxing, Don King did it. He rose from a life of hardship and crime to become the most successful boxing promoter the sport has ever seen. And as the first black man to do so, it was his own American dream. His flamboyant appearance, dizzying wit, and commanding personality made him a star in and out of the ring. But his less than honest exploits, well, they made him legendary. Hi, everyone. One last thing. Thank you to all of you for listening to Power Hugh Hefner. And we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to powerpod.fans to answer a few questions. Thank you so much.